0: Chapter 5, Part C of Greener Than You Think. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Greener Than You Think by Ward Moore. Chapter 5, Part C. The world took the extension of the grass to South America with a philosophic calm which can only be described as amazing. Even the Latins themselves seemed more concerned with how the grass had jumped the gap than with the impending fate of their continent. The generally accepted theory was that it had somehow mysteriously come by way of the West Indies, although as yet the grass had not appeared on any of those islands. And even Cuba, within sight of the submerged Florida Keys, was apparently safe behind her protective supercyclone fans. But the fact that grass had appeared first at Medellin in Colombia rather than in the tiny bit of Panama remaining seemed to show it had not come directly from the dagger pointed mass poised above the continent. La Prensa of Buenos Aires said in a long editorial entitled, Does Humanity Betray Itself? When the Colossus of the North was evilly enchanted, many Americans, except possibly our friends across the river plate, breathed more easily. Now it would seem their rejoicing was premature, and the doom of the Yankee is also to be the doom of our older civilization. How did this verdant disease spread from one continent to another? That is the question which tortures every human heart from the Antarctic to the Caribbean. It is believed the cordon around North America has not been generally respected. Scientists with the noblest motives and adventurers urged on by the basest are alike believed to have visited the forbidden continent. It may well be that on one of these trips the seeds of the gigantic Cynodon dactylum were brought back. "'It is well known that the agents of a certain Yankee capitalist have been accustomed to taking off on mysterious journeys near the very spot now afflicted by the Emerald Plague. "'It was a dastardly hint, and the sort of thing I had long come to look upon as inseparable from my position.' of all peoples the latin americans have long been known as the most notoriously ungrateful for the work we did in developing their countries why in some backwards parts the natives have been content to live by hunting and fishing till we furnished them with employment and paid them enough so they could buy salt fish and canned meats Fortunately La Prez's innuendo so obviously inspired by envy was not taken up, and attention soon turned from the insoluble problem of bridging the gap to the southward progress of the weed itself. From the very first every one took for granted the victory of the grass. No concerted efforts were made either to confine or to destroy it. The World Congress to combat the grass, far from being inactive, worked heroically, but it got little cooperation from the peoples most closely affected. When at one time it seemed as though the Congress had got hold of a possible weapon, the Venezuelans refused them the necessary sites, and Brazil would not allow passage of foreign soldiers over its soil. Nationalism suddenly became rampant. "'We will die as Ecuadorians, descendants of the Incas,' exclaimed the leading newspaper of Quito. El Gaucho of Lima pointed out caustically that most of Ecuador's area really belonged to Peru, and the Peruvians were the true descendants of the Incas anyway. "'We shall all die as unashamed Peruvians,' thundered El Gaucho. In vain the church pointed out the difference between Christian resignation and sinful suicide.' The reply of most South Americans, when they bothered to reply at all, was either that the coming of the grass expressed God's will toward them, or else to scorn the church entirely. Imitations of Brother Paul's movement flourished, with additions and refinements suited to the Latin temperament. So the efforts of the World Congress were almost entirely limited to searching each ship, plane, and individual, leaving the doomed continent to be sure none of the fatal seeds were transported even this precaution was resented as an infringement on national sovereignty but the resentment was limited to bellicose pronouncements in the newspapers the republics looked on sullenly while their honor was systematically violated by phlegmatic inspectors the grass grew to unheard of heights in the tropical valley of the amazon it washed the slopes of the Andes as it had the Cordilleras and the Rockies, leaving only the highest peaks free of its presence. It raced across the llanos, the savannas and the pampas, and covered the high plateaus in a slow, relentless growth. The people ran from the grass, not in a straight line from north to south, but by indirection, seeking first the sea coasts and then escape from the afflicted land those north americans who had eluded the grass once did not satisfy themselves with half measures when their sanctuary was lost but bought passage on any bottom capable however dubiously of keeping out the sea and embarked for the farthest regions in point of time i am now about halfway through my narrative it is hard to believe that only eleven years have passed since the grass conquered south america Indeed, it is extraordinarily difficult for me to reconstruct these middle years at all. Not because they were hard or unpleasant. On the contrary, they carried me from one success to another. But because they have, in memory, the dreamlike quality of unreality, elusive, vague, and tantalizing. Like a dream, too, was the actual progress of the grass. We were all, I think, impressed by the sense of repetition of a scene enacted over and over again. It was this quality which gives my story, now that I look back upon it, a certain distortion, for no one hearing it for the first time, and not as any reader of these words must be, thoroughly familiar with the events, could believe in the efforts made to combat the grass. These efforts existed, we did not yield without struggles, We fought for South America as we had fought for North America. But it was a nightmare fight. Our endeavors seem retrospectively those of the paralyzed. The grass gripped the continent's great northern bulge, squeezed it into submission, and worked its way southward to the slender tip, driving the inhabitants before it, duplicating previous acts by sending an influx from sparsely to thickly settled areas creating despair, terror, disruption, and confusion, pestilence, hysteria, and famine. The drama was not played through in one act but many, to a world waiting the conclusion it dragged on through interminable months and years, offering no change, no sudden twists of fortune, no elusive hopes. At last, mercifully, the tragedy ended, The green curtain came down and covered the continent to the Strait of Magellan. The grass looked wistfully across at Tierra del Fuego, the land of ice and fire, but even its veracity balked momentarily at any rate at the inhospitable island and left it to whatever refugees chose its shores as a slower but still certain death. South America finally gone, the rest of the globe breathed easier. It would be a slander on humanity to say there was actual rejoicing when the World Congress sealed off this continent too, but whatever sorrow was felt for its loss was balanced by the feeling that at long last the peril of the grass was finally ended. No longer would speculative Germans, thoughtful Chinese, or wakeful Englishmen wonder if the super-cyclone fans were indeed an effective barrier. No longer would Cubans, Colombians, or Venezuelans look northward apprehensively. Oceanic barriers now confined the peril, and though the world was shrunken and hurt, it was yet alive. More, it was free from fear for the first time since the mutated seeds had blown over the salt band. I must not give the impression that a wiping off of the grass from the account books of humanity was universal and complete, The World Congress periodically considered proposals for countermeasures. On the top of Mount Whitney, Miss Francis still labored. New assistants were flown to her as the old ones wandered down the great rock slide from the old stone weatherhouse, off into the grass during fits of despondency, went mad from the realization that, except for problematical survivors on the polar caps, they were alone in an abandoned hemisphere or died of simple homesickness. In the research laboratories of consolidated pemmican, formulas for utilizing the grass were still tinkered with, and the death of almost every public-spirited man of fortune revealed a will containing bequests to aid those seeking means of controlling the weed. It is not, after all, a detached history of the past twenty-one years I am writing. Contemporaries are only too well aware of the facts and posterity will find them dehydrated in textbooks. I started out to tell of my own personal part in the coming of the grass, not to take an olympian and aloof view on the passion of man. The very mention of a personal part brings to mind a subject which might be painful were I of a petty nature. There were people who, willfully blind to the facts, held me responsible in the face of all reason for the grass itself. Although it is difficult to believe, there have been many occasions when I have been denounced by demagogues and my blood called for by vicious mobs. But enough of morbid retrospection. I think I can say at this time there was, with the exception of certain Indian nabobs, hardly a wealthy man left in the world who did not owe in some way the retention of his riches to me. I controlled more than half the steel industry. I owned outright the majority stocks of the world oil cartel. Coal, iron, copper, tin and other mines either belonged directly to me or to tributary companies in which I held large interests. Along with the demagoguery of attributing the grass to Albert Weiner, there was the agitation for socialism and the expropriation of all private property, the attempt to deprive men of the fruit of their endeavor and reduce everyone to a regimented miserable level it is hardly necessary to say that i spared no effort to combat the insidious agents of the fourth international fortunately for the preservation of the free enterprise system i had tools ready to hand the overrunning of the united states wiped out the gangs which operated so freely there but remnants made their escape taking with them to the older continents their philosophy of life and property gathering native recruits, they began following the familiar patterns and would in time no doubt have divided the world into countless minute baronies. However, I was able to subsidize and reason with enough of their leaders to persuade them that their livelihood and very existence rested on a basis of private property, and that their great danger came not from each other, but from the advocates of socialism. They saw the point, and though they did not cease from warring on each other or molting the general public, they were ruthless in exterminating the socialists, and they left the goods and adjuncts of consolidated pemmican and allied industries scrupulously unmolested. Strange as it sounds, it was not my part in protecting the world from the philosophy of equality, nor my ramified properties, which gave me my unique position. Unbelievably, because the change had occurred so gradually— industry though still a vital factor no longer played the dominant role in the world but had given the position back to an earlier occupant food was once more paramount in global economy loss of the americas had cut the supply in half without reducing the population correspondingly The Socialist Union remained self-sufficient and uninterested, while Australia, New Zealand, and the cultivated portions of Africa strove to feed the millions of Europeans and Asiatics whose lands could not grow enough for their own use. The slightest falling off of the harvest produced famine. At this point, Consolidated Pemmican practically took over the entire business of agriculture. Utilizing by-products and crops otherwise not worth gathering, Waste materials and growths inedible without processing, with plants strung out all over the four continents and with tremendously reduced shipping costs because of the small compass in which so much food could be contained, we were able to let our customers earn their daily concentrates by gathering the raw materials which went into them. I was not only the wealthiest, most powerful man in the world, but its savior and providence as well. With the new feeling of security bathing the world, tension dissolved into somnolence, and the tempo of daily life slackened until it scarcely seemed to move at all. The waves of anxiety, suspicion, and distrust of an earlier decade calmed into peaceful ripples, hardly noticeable in a pond-like existence. No longer beset by thoughts or fears of wars, nations relaxed their pride, Armies were reduced to little more than palace guards, brass bands, and parade units, while navies were kept up, if periodic painting and retaining in commission a few obsolete cruisers and destroyers be so termed, only to patrol the Atlantic and Pacific shores of the lost hemisphere. The struggle for existence almost disappeared. The wage scales set by consolidated pemmican were enough to sustain life, and in a world of limited horizons, men became content with that. The bickering characteristic of industrial dispute vanished. Along with it went the outmoded weapon of the trades union. It was a halcyon world and if, as Cranks complained, illiteracy increased rapidly, it could only be because with every man's livelihood assured his natural indolence took the upper hand, and he not only lost refinements superficially acquired, but was uninterested in teaching them to his children. I don't know how I can express the golden sunlit quality of this period. It was not an heroic age, No great deeds were performed, no conflicts resolved, no fundament-shaking ideas broached. Quiet, peace, content, these were the key words of the era. Preoccupation with politics and panaceas gave place to healthier interests, sports and pageants and giant fairs. Men became satisfied with their lot, and if they to a great extent discarded speculation and disquieting philosophies, they found a useful substitute in quiet meditation. Until now I had never had the time to live in a manner befitting my station, but with my affairs running so smoothly that even Stuart Thario and Tony Preblesham found idle time, I began to turn my attention to the easier side of life. Of course i never considered making my permanent home anywhere but in england for all its parochialism and oddities it was the nearest i could come to approximating my own country i bought a gentleman's park in hampshire and had the outmoded house torn down it had been built in elizabethan times and was cold drafty and uncomfortable with not one modern convenience For a time I considered preserving it intact as a sort of museum piece and building another home for myself on the grounds, but when I was assured by experts that Tudor architecture was not considered to be of surpassing merit, and I could find in addition no other advantageous site, I ordered its removal. I called in the best architects for consultation, but my own artistic and practical sense as they themselves were quick to acknowledge furnished the basis for the beautiful mansion i put up moved by nostalgic memories of my lost southland i built a great and ample bungalow of some sixty rooms stucco topped with asbestos tile since a spanish motif natural to this form would have been out of place in england and therefore in bad taste i had timbers set in the stucco although of course they performed no function but that of decoration the supports being framework which was not visible it was delightful and satisfying to come into this spacious and cozy living-room filled with overstuffed easy-chairs and comfortable couches warmed by the most efficient of central heating systems or to use one of the perfectly appointed bathrooms whose every fixture was the best money could buy and recall the dank stone floors and walls leading up to a mammoth and from a thermal point of view perfectly useless fireplace flanked by the coats of arms of dead-and-gone gentry who were content to shuffle out on inclement mornings to answer nature's calls in chilly outhouses So large and commodious an establishment required an enormous staff of servants, which in turn called for a housekeeper and a steward to supervise their activities, for, as I have observed many times, the farther down one goes on the wage scale the more it is necessary to hire a high-salaried executive to see that the wage is earned. I cannot say in general that I ever learned to distinguish between one retainer and another, except, of course, my personal manservant and Burlett, the head butler whom I hired right from under the nose of the Marquis of Arpers, his lordship being unable to match my offer. But in spite of the confusion caused by such a multiplicity of menials, I one day noticed an undergardener whose face was tantalizingly familiar. He touched his cap respectfully as I approached, but I had the curious feeling that it was a taut gesture and not one which came naturally to him. Have you been here long my good man i asked still trying to place him no sir he answered about two weeks funny i'm almost certain i've noticed you before he shook his head and made a tentative gesture with the hoe or a rake or whatever the tool was in his hand as though he would now with my permission resume his labors what is your name i inquired not believing it would jog my memory, but out of a natural politeness toward inferiors who always feel flattered by such attention. Dinkman, he muttered, Adam Dinkman. That incredibly dilapidated front lawn, overrun with sickly devil grass and spotted with bald patches, Mrs. Dinkman's mean bargaining with a tired man who was doing no more than trying to make a living, and her later domineering harshness towards someone who was in no way responsible for the misfortune which overcame her, I wondered if she were still alive or had lost her life in the grass while an indigent on public charity. It is indeed a small world, I thought, and how far we have both come since I humbled myself in order to put food in my stomach and keep a roof over my head. Thank you, Dinkman, I said, turning away. A warm feeling for a fellow American caused me to call in my steward and bid him give Dinkman one hundred pounds, a small fortune to an undergardener, and let him go. Though he might not realize it immediately, I was doing him a tremendous favor, for an American with one hundred pounds in England was bound to do better for himself in some small business than he could hope to do as a mere servant. Looking back upon this too brief time of tranquillity and satisfaction, I cannot help but sigh for its passing. Preceded and followed by periods of turbulence and stress, it stands out in my life as an incredible moment, a soothing dream. Perhaps a faint defect, so small as to be almost unnoticed, was a feeling of solitariness, an inevitable concomitant of my position, but this was so slight that i could not even define it as loneliness and like many another defect it merely heightened the charm of the whole i had wealth power the respect of the world the unavoidable detachment from the mob was mitigated by simple pleasures my estate was a constant delight The quaint survivals of feudalism among the tenantry amused me, and though I could not bring myself to pretend an interest in the absurd affectation of fox-hunting, I was well received by the county people, whose insularity and aloofness I found greatly exaggerated, perhaps by outsiders not as cosmopolitan as myself excursions to london and other cities where my presence was demanded or could be helpful afforded me a frequent change of scene and visits by important people as well as more intimate ones by preblesham and the tharios prevented the ivies for so my place was called from ever becoming dull to me The general fell in love with a certain ale which was brewed on the premises and declared, in spite of his lifelong rule to the contrary, that it could be mixed with Irish whiskey to make a drink so agreeable that no sane man would want a better. The girls, particularly Winifred, were enchanted with my private woods, the gardens, and the deer park. But Mama, throughout their visits, remained almost entirely silent and aloof, except for the rare remarks which seemed to burst from her as though by an inescapable inward compulsion. These were always insulting and always directed at me, but I overlooked them, knowing her to be deranged. End of chapter five, part C.